Christmas has its cradle and Easter has its cross. And both are worthy to sing about. And the, the great thing is that the Christmas or the, the cradle and the cross, neither one are the bookends of our story. The cradle is not the beginning and the cross is not the end. And so today we are going to talk a little bit about this small part of the story that, that the whole story revolves around, the whole story is built on, but it's just a, a segment of this story that God has been telling since before creation and a story that will go on forever as we worship Him and we're going to get to look at one little piece of it because of the grace He has given us in His Word and the grace He has given us in His Son. So we're going to be in Colossians and Philippians, kind of splitting time between those two books. They're right next to each other, probably just one page turn uh, where we'll be. We'll be in Colossians 1, Philippians 2, and we'll be back and forth between those two this morning. Uh, if you guys know my family, we're pretty big Disney people. We, we, we do Disney uh, a, a lot. We like Disney. We, we try to figure out ways to go to Disney. We do all kinds of stuff tied to Disney. We like Disney a, a lot. Um, I wasn't a Disney person before I got married. I really didn't care all that much. Um, and I really still was not all that much until we had kids. And something happened over the last decade or so that uh, has changed. We're all big Disney people now. And uh, oftentimes the, the, the conversation comes up in our family. We'll, we'll be talking and uh, random things will, will come up trying to start conversation. And they'll say, what's your favorite Disney movie? And we'll talk about different things about who likes what movie and why they like that movie. And I struggle here because, one, none of my favorite movies are Disney movies. In all honesty, what I like about Disney has less to do about the movies and more to do about stuff around the movies and other things. And so I I struggle here, and it kind of depends on when you ask me what my answer would be. I've told you before, Mary Poppins is big in our house. I like The Nightmare Before Christmas, so you can... Take whatever you think about that, because I know some of y'all think that that's just really weird, and it is a weird movie, but I like that one. Um, but one movie that I really remember kind of stood out to me, I remember in the 90s, you know, they had this string of, of movies that kind of started with The Little Mermaid and all these animated movies that were these big hits, and for a while they were all about princesses, uh, until they came out with The Lion King, which I really liked, and they came out with Aladdin. And I always remember that I really enjoyed Aladdin, and part of the reason is because it it wasn't all about the princess and, and all that was there, but also because I remember in second grade, long before Disney got a hold of it, hearing our librarian tell this story about Aladdin. And I just thought it was a really cool story and this magic lamp and all that he finds. And I don't remember much about the original story other than I really liked it. And I don't know what all Disney did to it. Uh, but, but there's, I just enjoyed that movie. And in that movie, there's kind of this event that the story turns on. Because you've got this homeless beggar, uh, Aladdin, this guy who's who's no good. And you've got the royal princess, Jasmine. Jasmine, uh, as one would, kind of gets tired of living in the palace. Because we, we would all get tired of living in the palace. And she decides that the slums are more her speed. And she would rather go and live in the slums and do her thing. She'd rather go there, live in the slums, and, and see how life is. Because who doesn't dream of life in the slums when you live in the palace? And so she sneaks out of the royal palace, enters into town to see uh, the peasants and how they live. And she kind of checks things out 
out and, and she wants to see how they live compared to how she lives. And as you might imagine, in order to make a decent movie, all kinds of crazy things happen. And, uh, one of the things is that, you know, Jasmine shows, or that, that Aladdin shows Jasmine a, a whole new world and takes her flying on the magic carpet ride. And that's, that's kind of how the whole story really takes off and it goes, uh, from there. It's a great soundtrack. It's a fun movie. You got Ron Williams, who's hard to beat as the genie, who can't be beat as the genie. And uh, so why do I tell you all of this about Aladdin? What does that have to do with, with anything? Uh, I tell you this because the story of Aladdin, or more specifically the story of Jasmine, can tell us a lot about Christmas. It can teach us a lot about Jesus. And we'll come back to that in just a few minutes, but I'll just kind of hang that out there as a teaser and tell you we'll come back to this here in just a few uh, in just a few minutes. But for now, we'll look in the, the chapter one of the book of Genesis, because what I want to do is I want to look at what really happened at Christmas. I want to see what happened in that manger. Zechariah thought a Messiah had come, and he was right, but he thought it was a Messiah that would likely rule militarily or politically, kind of take over power, that he would be this revolutionary. His disciples, if you follow them all throughout the Gospels, they're waiting for Jesus to kind of institute this revolution that the Messiah is supposed to uh, supposed to lead. Um, everybody was pretty well convinced that it was around Jesus. In fact, many were following Jesus because they thought that's what he was about to do. But these men who spent so much time with Jesus didn't fully comprehend who it was that they were walking with until well after Jesus was already gone. So I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1 that's going to lay out for us exactly who he is. If you watched last week, we read this verse last week, but I want to come back to it and explain a little bit more with it. So Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about Jesus. Paul doesn't say he is the revolutionary we've all been waiting for. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We'll stop there. As I said last week, this passage is stunning in its comprehensiveness and what it lays out there. And it will serve, along with one other passage we'll read here in a few minutes in Philippians 2, as the backbone for our time during December and walking through Advent. Because what people expected was a political figure, but what they got was something totally different. I wonder if this has ever happened to you at Christmas, where you were convinced you were about to get one thing under the tree, and then whenever Christmas came along, it was something totally different. You were convinced that that for you, you were going to have this really nice present. You were going to have that PS5 sitting under the tree, that somehow your parents had found the one that was out there, and it was going to be under the tree for you. Or if you're more my generation, the Sega Genesis would be sitting there for you under the tree, ready for you to, 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 you can't text your friends and show them a picture. You would actually have to pick up the phone and call them and be like, Hey, I got this thing. If you didn't get one, you need to come over to my house and play because that's how we're going to spend Christmas afternoon because 
this is all that I have wanted. And then Christmas Day comes, you find the box that looks roughly like a game console, and you're thinking, that is it. And then you open it up, and it's like a really nice pair of shoes. It's like, all right, the nice shoes, that's good. I appreciate the shoes. I probably needed some new shoes, but that's not what I was looking for. So immediately you start looking around the tree like, okay, what other boxes might be what I was looking for? You can't find one. So then you, you open up some other presents, and then it's a game for the old console that you had. And you quickly realize, oh no, I may have miscalculated here. My parents went, went the old route instead of, instead of upgrading for me. And so I'm going to be stuck for another year with this thing because I don't have the money to buy it. And you realize that you're not going to get the game system that you wanted. That's kind of what happened to Zechariah and much of Israel. They appreciated the shoes. It's nice, but it's not quite the splash that they were hoping for. It's not quite what they thought they were going to get. So they were a little bit disappointed. But the reality is God had something far bigger in mind for Israel and for all of the world. You see, Israel's sights were set far too low. What they had asked for for Christmas was something that was, was far too, too simple, far too, far too small. And so God, wanted, God decides and chooses to give something bigger. Their sights were set on an earthly kingdom. God's sights were much bigger. Jesus was coming to set up something totally different and totally in way, way bigger. And that's why Paul's writing here in Colossians is so important. It tells us that we got in Jesus, maybe not what we asked for, but exactly what we needed. We didn't realize that we needed this. We thought we needed somebody to get Rome off our backs. We thought we needed somebody to kind of reestablish us as the preeminent kingdom in the, in the area. We thought that's what we needed, and that's what we asked for. But what God said is, no, you need something much bigger and much better than that. And so we did not get this brilliant political mind. We did not get the fiery revolutionary. We did not get a warrior. We got instead... God himself. So Jesus shows up and all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. That's the, the, the bookends there of 15 and 19. He is the image of the invisible God and all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see those two bookends there. The image of the invisible God and all the fullness of God. All of it. The image of God that we can't see. God himself shows up. And even as we say that, though, we start bringing up kind of all these caveats in our mind. Like, okay, I I get it. Jesus is God, the Trinity. I kind of get it. It makes my head hurt, but I I don't want to think about it too much, but I I get it. Like that, that's how that's supposed to work. We, we, but we, we immediately, in order to somehow wrap our minds around it, we start kind of qualifying that statement. Because after all, if he was fully God, then we have some big questions that we have to deal with. If you've been here at all during 2020, if you've been here for the last few months, you know that we've been looking at the attributes of God. And we talked about two types, communicable and incommunicable. The the communicable are the ones that, that we share. And those are easy enough to see how Jesus embodies those. He is gentle. He is kind. He is patient. He is loving. He is faithful. We can see how Jesus embodies those because even though we can't do it fully like Jesus does, 
because we have sin mixed in there, we can understand those concepts. It's the incommunicable ones that make us ask questions or, or start offering up kind of these caveats. And we start wondering, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Jesus was God, how come he doesn't seem to act or do things in the same way that God does in the Old Testament? The same way that we see God described, that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipresent, that he has all of these things, unlimited power, all, all knowledge. He is present everywhere at all times. How can Jesus be God if he can't be omnipresent? Because after all, he was born in a very specific place, in a very specific way. He was born in a manger. He came, he was born in that place. He lived his life in a very small region of the world. He never made it all over the earth. Santa Claus has got more on him, saw more of the earth than he did. So how can we say that Jesus is God if Jesus was limited in all of these ways? What do we do with someone that is God, but then looks like us, talks like us, is born like us, grows up like us, learns like us, but then Paul says, he's God, you're not. That's confusing. Does God have all of these attributes, or does he not? Did Jesus stop being God whenever he came to earth? What happened so that he can still be God? I've got one more passage for us to read this morning that will be our other anchor, kind of our twin anchor for the month, our twin pillars uh, in the New Testament about the nature of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, one that we go to a lot. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a big one right there. But emptied himself, there's another big one, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Now, there's way more in these passages than we can cover. But verse 6 and 7 help to frame for us how Jesus can be both God and man. Now, verse 6 affirms what we've already seen in Colossians, that Jesus was in the form of God. Now, in our modern way of talking, whenever we say that something is in the form of, kind of what we mean is it's fashioned in the same way. So like you could, you, could, you could build something or you could, you know, it's Christmas time, maybe you're, you're, you're painting ornaments or like my house last night, we were decorating cookies and there's a gingerbread man here and then you use the same cutout and there's another gingerbread man over here and we can say that they're in the same form. But that's not what that means in the way that Paul is communicating. That word form would have taken upon it a totally different idea uh, in, in, in Paul's writing. The way that that, what that means in the original language there and in, in Paul's writing is that form means much more than kind of the outward shape and appearance. It means it's the same in essence. So when it says that he was in the, in the form of God, what it means is he is the essence of God, the same 
Forms are not like outward shapes, but they were like inward copies, kind of inward natures. And so Jesus had the same nature of God. He was the same. Form has more to do with substance than appearance. So that affirms what we've already seen in Colossians chapter 1. That little part just affirms what we just saw in Colossians. But then it says something, uh, it says that he didn't count equality, sameness, the form of God, as something to be grasped. And what Paul is getting at here is that Jesus didn't see his, his, his divinity as this thing to kind of be forcibly held onto. So grasped here isn't talking about like a, a mental grasping of something. It's talking about kind of like holding onto and saying, I'm not going to let go of this thing. He didn't consider that as something to, 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 to be forcibly held onto, and he didn't demand all that comes with that truth. And it's in the next word, the, the next words that really kind of help explain what, what, what Paul means here. It says that he emptied himself. Now, how did he empty himself? The very next words, it says, by taking human form. So he emptied himself, how? By taking human form. Those verses right there will explain this. So how does this work? Because think about what it's saying there. He emptied himself by adding something. So it doesn't say he emptied himself by becoming less of what he was. It says he emptied himself by adding something there. This does not mean that Jesus poured out his divine attributes. He did not. He always maintains all that makes him God. Those things never go anywhere. He always maintains that. Because if he didn't, he would no longer be God. Do you see that? If you give up part of being God, you're no longer God. You are something lesser than God. So he always maintains those attributes. What happens is not that Jesus removes some part of who he is in order to become human. What he does is he adds to who he already is. So he emptied himself. And how does he do this? By taking human form. It's subtraction by addition. I know that doesn't work well in math, but it works when we're talking about theology. It's subtraction by addition. Let me give you an illustration that I've heard a few people use that helped me out. Maybe it'll help you guys out. Let's say I were to head over to a car dealership. Maybe a really nice like luxury car, maybe like a Mercedes, maybe it's, it's something nicer, maybe we go find us a nice uh, like Lamborghini, or may, maybe we just head up 92, we go to the Ford dealership, and you walk into the showroom, and you see a brand new Ford Mustang, fully loaded, Mustang Cobra convertible, got all the stuff, right? It's, it's red, it, it looks like Santa's sleigh. It's ready for a bow to be sitting in your driveway on December the 25th. So you got this beautiful car that's sitting there. And if I were to tell a dealer that I had to take a test drive right now, like right then and there, I need to take a test drive. And I put the salesman in the passenger seat and I sit, I sit down in the driver's seat. And I drive it right out of the showroom. They open up the garage doors. I drive it right out of the showroom. I go down. I take a, take a, take a turn, get on 92 and I floor it, right? I get on eight. I, I, I get on 92 and I'm just going 90 down 92 and I'm, I'm flying down there. And then I get to the lake and I decide, you know what? Let's see what this thing will do in the lake bed. Water's down right now. Let's just see what this thing will do out there. 
And so I, I, I just ramp over whatever curbs are in the way, and I go take it out in the lake bed, and I get out there, and I'm just flying around, doing donuts, doing all kinds of stuff, mud flying everywhere, tops down, salesman is freaking out, calling 911 as we're driving around. I somehow manage not to get stuck in the mud, and then I come, and I, 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 I get out of the lake bed somehow, get back on 92, fly up there, come tearing into the showroom, slam on the brakes, hop out, throw him the keys and say, thanks, I'm good. I don't think I really want to buy this thing. But that was a good test drive. I appreciate it. First off, that's not going to go well for me. There'll probably be cops waiting on me when I get back to the showroom uh, if they let me get that far, right? Um, the salesman, after he, he finishes trying to strangle me, will we'll get out and, and he and the, uh, the, the sales manager would come over me and they would say, what have you done? This car was pristine when you got in it. It was great. And now look at it. It's covered in mud on the inside because we had the top down while we were tearing it up. It's covered in mud on the outside. What have you done to this car? And if I were to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I've not taken anything away from this car. All I've done is added to it. I mean, it's mud, but I added to the car. That wasn't there when I got it, and now I gave you back more than you gave me when I went to take the test drive. That is subtraction by addition, because that car is not going to be worth as much sitting in that showroom floor, dirty and nasty, caked in mud, stained on the inside with mud. Why? Because it doesn't look the same. It doesn't have the glory that it had under those showroom lights perfectly detailed. I have added something to it. But in adding something to it, I have taken away something about it. I've taken away some of its glory. I've taken away some of its shine. I've taken away some of its value. Now that's an imperfect illustration, but it's a helpful illustration to understand what happened when it says Jesus emptied himself by taking on human nature. That Mustang retains all of the things that makes it a fast car and a fun car to drive. It retains all of those things, but now caked in all this stuff, it's not quite the same car that it was. At least it doesn't look quite the same. It's, it's, it's glory is somehow covered and diminished in what you can see about it. You see, this is what happens when Jesus comes and he takes on flesh. He's still God. All those attributes are there. But he takes on the limitations of flesh. He takes on the limitations of what it means to be human. So in order to become human, there's certain things that have to be about who Jesus is. He has to be limited in his knowledge. He has to grow. He has to learn. He has to be born. And eventually he has to die. If he's going to carry it out to the end. He didn't lose his divinity. He simply added something more. It's an imperfect analogy as I said. But it helps us to understand what is going on there. Jesus didn't lose anything, but what he gained required of him humility and the willingness to take on our flesh. I want to give one more analogy that will kind of lead us to our conclusion for the morning, kind of lead us to our close for the morning. Let's go back to Aladdin. Let's go back to the story of Aladdin. Remember how the one key plot point was how Jasmine left the palace to go hang out in the slums with the poor people. 
Now let's 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 imagine a, a king that wanted to do the same. Let's let's imagine a king that was there that that one day was riding by in his uh, uh, in his convoy, and he looks over and he sees a part of the city he'd never seen before, and he's concerned about those people that he sees over there, and he says, "You know what? I need to know more about these people, and I need to know how people within my kingdom live, how people within my city live." So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to uh, forego all the rights that I have as a king. I'm not going to carry my royal guard. I'm going to get out of my, my fine clothes and my fine linen, and instead I'm going to put on the old tattered clothes of a beggar. And I'm going to walk out of the palace, and I'm not going to tell anybody. No one's going to know where to find me. No one's going to know where to come and get me. I can't just blow a whistle and say, here I am, and everyone show up to, uh, to rescue me. I'm going to go, and I'm going to live here. I'm going to be a beggar. And I'm going to do this because I want to make sure I get the full experience of what this means. Because this is kind of what Jasmine did in Aladdin. But he goes and he does this for weeks. Now, if this happens, has the king lost his royal claim to the throne? No. He is still the king. Has he lost the, the, the power and the ability to demand his subjects submit to him? No, he still retains all of that authority. He doesn't lay any of that aside. He hasn't said, okay, uh, you know, the, the prince, you can now take over. He just simply steps out and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to live in this way. He is still the king. The question then comes, how long will he keep this up? How long does he need to go to get the full experience of living with these people? In Aladdin, Princess Jasmine doesn't last very long. She's confronted with her new friend, Aladdin's punishment, how he's going to get in trouble for, for stealing something and for, for, for doing other stuff. And, and immediately, she, she, she pulls back her, her hood that had concealed her identity, and she says, I am the princess, unhand him, don't hurt him. And immediately, they have to listen to everything that she says. But this is where the two stories take a very distinctive split. Jasmine makes the move that almost, well, that frankly, all of us would make. She tries out living in the slums. She realizes that, you know what, maybe there's some things that I've been missing, but uh, generally, I like having the ability to pull the princess card whenever I need to. I like having the ability to say, I am royal, do what I say. I want the guard behind me to protect me and to do my bidding. She decides that she, those royal privileges are pretty good things to have. So it only lasts a, a small time. Jesus, however, never does this. He is falsely imprisoned. And he does not call upon his royal guard of angels to come and rescue him. Why does he not do that? He tells Pilate it's because that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not here to fight for this, this kingdom that Zechariah and that so many of the disciples thought he was here to fight for. He has a bigger kingdom in mind. When he is beaten, he takes it. When he is betrayed, he feels it and he takes it. When he is abandoned on the cross by his friends, he feels that too. In that moment, would you not have said, okay, enough is enough. I get it. I'm poor. I'm getting beaten. 
This is not going to go well for me. I see where this is going. Even my best friends, they've left me. They've betrayed me. All right, I get it. I'm done. Let me show you who I really am. Unveil the truth of who he is, that he is not just a man, but he is also God. Unveil that. Call the angels in and say, you're all finished. Wouldn't you want to do that? Think about when you've suffered. Think about maybe when you've been betrayed or you've been hurt. How quickly would you be like, if you could do something to set that right, how quickly would you do it? If you could do something to reset that situation, how quickly would you do it? None of us would know suffering in here if we had the ability to stop it. We would pull that card in a heartbeat. We would say, I am the king, I want my royal guard, I want my royal physician, I want everyone here to attend to me and make sure that I am well. But Jesus doesn't do that. You see, when Jesus decides to come to earth as a servant, he does it to the bitter end. Listen again to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Not just a human. He didn't come as a king, but as the lowest form of a human, a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way Paul says that, he's making the point He didn't just come to earth as a king to rule. He came to earth to serve. He didn't just come to earth to serve. He came to earth to live and to take on all the infirmities and all the frailties of our flesh. He didn't just come to earth to take on all of those things. He came to earth to die. He didn't just come to earth to die. He came to earth to die, even die on a cross. Jesus was a king. Jesus was God. But he came here to pursue us and to rescue us. And he did it to the bitter end. He never deviated from that mission. You see, Christmas is not, Christmas is not about family and friends and how to be kind to others or about good food or trees and presents. All those are good things. But that's not Christmas. Christmas is a rescue story. It's telling a story about a king who puts on beggar's clothes, who lives a beggar's life, who dies a beggar's death, despite the fact that at any point he could say, enough, I'm done with these people. And he would be right to do so. And why did he do that? He did that to pursue you. To pursue me. Even though we're the ones actively inflicting the punishment. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. Forgive them. And he pursues us. Yesterday I found a new singer that... uh, 
I have immediately fallen in love with. You guys know I love Christmas music. One of my favorite things to do every year at Christmas is to find one or two new artists that I didn't know before that helped me out so much. Last year I found Future of Forestry. I don't know if you guys know them. Their stuff is really, really good. I like their stuff. This year I found a couple of others. One that I found, I just found this 24 hours ago, and I didn't think it was right to be like, hey, Chandice, I need you to do this song. Um, so I, I'm just going to read some of this, but uh, her name is, is, is Caroline Cobb. And maybe you guys know who she is. She's, if y'all are Andrew Peterson fans, she reminds me a lot of Andrew Peterson and what he, uh, what he has written. Uh, she's got an Advent album out called A Seed, A Sunrise, and it is so helpful. Uh, she even got a song for the Jesse tree in there. So if you guys are working through the Jesse tree, she's got one in there that's great for that too. But yesterday, as I listened to this album and, and knowing what I'd be speaking about this morning, things just kind of gelled for me and, and came together. And this song kind of explained very well what it is that Jesus did. I'm going to read this because I'm not about to sing it. But I'm going to read this. In verse 1, it says, Eternal God, there at the beginning, stepping into time, into the world, all for love, the infinite descending, to kick inside the womb of a girl. A king is born, far from any palace, bending low to serve instead. Majesty, he's given up status, robed in the weakness of the flesh. Unto us a child is born, heaven coming down to earth. Joy to all the weary world, the human soul will feel its worth. That is a great picture of what happens in the Incarnation. God himself submitting himself to be inside the womb of a girl. God himself, a king born far from a palace, choosing to serve instead. Majesty, he's given it up, robed in our weakness. This is what happens at Christmas. Jesus is still God. All of those attributes are still there. But in order to be man as well, he has to take in some of those. Some of those are restricted by the frailties of our flesh. The king came to earth, lived a beggar's life, died a beggar's death, so that we might become sons in the kingdom and share in the inheritance of the king. What a, what a thing we celebrate. What a worthy thing to celebrate every year. Christianity is not about praying a prayer. It is not about doing some good deeds. It is not about walking an aisle or even about getting baptized. It's about the Christmas story and the story of a king that pursued people that would be his enemy. A king that refused to give up, that refused to quit, but then, but then went to the, the very bitter end. I cannot think of a better story to tell for a world that is desperately in need of hope. A world that is completely convinced there is nothing more to life than what this life might have to offer. Than for us as Christians to say, hang on. This is a small part of the story. You've got it all messed up. This is not the whole story. This is a small part of the story. This story is so much bigger. It's so much bigger than your finite temporary life. It is so much more. Let me tell you this story. 
It's a good one. We get rescued in the end. We get to be sons of the king, brought in and receive the full inheritance. In a world desperate to find hope and meaning, this is the the absolute best news that we can offer. Let us be faithful to offer that news and to offer it well. To offer something better than Christmas lists. To offer something better than than Black Friday sales. To offer something better than even vaccinations and ending this one little piece of suffering. But to offer something that truly brings hope for all eternity. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, this is a humbling thought for us. That you would send your son to take on a beggar's clothing, to live a beggar's life. Also that you would pursue us and that we might be benefactors of that. Father, we know that that your son was was fully within his right to stay. To stay fully glorified and never come here. For us to be forgotten, dismissed, punished, cast out. Objects of wrath. But instead, you pursued us to the bitter end. What a Savior. Father, we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.